You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. The world has been thrown into a deadly spin since the last Lodestar news podcast. In this episode, we won't be talking about the military or politics of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's for other media. Instead, in part one, we will hear what war in Europe means on a practical level. If you're in the business of logistics, what next for air freight and shipping operations and rail from Asia to Europe? Does this ease freight rates or increase pressure? How do you avoid falling foul of Russian sanctions? And how might you help the humanitarian effort? Then in part two, we look longer term. Is this the end of the post-World War II rules-based order? Global trade and globalization itself are built upon. And if so, what does this mean for the supply chain landscape on which you all plan and compete? Joining me will be the Load Stars, Alex Lenane and Nick Savides, DHL's Chris Weeks, Adrian Batayan, seafarer on the Namora Queen, which was hit by a missile fired by the Russian Navy off Ukraine in the Black Sea at the start of this war, Amy Daniel, CEO of Wynwood, and Michael Every, global strategist at Rabobank. The disruption we have seen in the past two weeks is indicative of what is going to become increasingly normal. Don't expect it to be unwound back to a nice open skies, open world environment again. Hello everybody, I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. The last three weeks, how sad they've been. After two years of talking about almost nothing but a pandemic that has caused unprecedented disruption, to global logistics and all our lives, who would have thought that in the violent blink of a dictator's eye, it would quickly become a case of what was that thing called COVID? COVID, of course, still poses a grim threat to global economics and health, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created a new prism or context through which we view it. When there are threats of nuclear war, everything just looks different. Our deepest sympathies at the Lodestar are, of course, with the victims in this assault on the world as we knew it, the people of Ukraine, a fantastic and beautiful country I've visited many times over the last two decades or more. What a tragedy this is for them. Today, we'll be looking at all the ramifications of that invasion for international trade, shipping and logistics. But before I introduce my two Lodestar guests, I would first like to think of the human impact this is having on some of our shipping colleagues. I interviewed able-bodied seaman Adrian Batayan, who is part of the crew of the Nomura Queen that was attacked by the Russian Navy in the first few days of this war off the Ukrainian port of Yuzhny, which is east of Odessa in the Black Sea. He explained to me that his vessel arrived to load grain just as the attack on Ukraine started on 24th of February. First, the crew saw explosions on land, then missiles fired by the Russian Navy started to hit vessels at Anchorage off Yuzhny, just as Adrian was reporting to his captain that a ship nearby had been struck was on fire and might need assistance. The Namora Queen was itself hit. The first vessel called us that they they are in fire. They're in fire. Then we knew it is a missile because it's a big blast. We called the captain. When we uh, put the phone down, uh, that's the time the missile hit us. The scrubber at the back of the ship have this very big hole. We have a low morale. We don't know what to do. Very sharp event, traumatic event also. So what happened next, Adrian? After that, we called the Ukrainian vessel, the port control also. Happily, there's a, a Ukrainian Navy ship. They assist us. The Ukrainian medics, uh, they help us because we have a one injured personnel. Uh, he hit it here in the back. Thankfully, it's not so serious. And so the, the injured colleague of yours was treated. He wasn't too serious. What happened to the vessel? Was the vessel badly damaged? And, and how did you get out of that area, out of the Black Sea eventually? Thankfully, sir, the engine of the vessel is not uh, damaged. Uh, we set sail, but the doors in the upper deck is badly damaged. The boiler is badly damaged. We don't have a heater and the cabins. It's very cold. At the back of the ships, very damaged everywhere. After that, we set sail. Thankfully, thank God that uh, we set sail. The engine start after two hours. 
But during our escape, the Russian warship called us. They are just asking where we're going, what goods we are carrying. But we, we said, we are not carrying anything. We are on a ballast condition. We set sail in the evening. So it's so scary. We don't know what will happen next. And we, we heard in the BHF that uh, they call for help. We just pray that nothing happened to us again. The media tend to focus during war on casualties, but you could probably hear from Adrian's voice that even though he escaped without injury, he had a very traumatic experience. And of course, there's millions of people in Ukraine currently being shelled by Russian military that we all see on our TV screens. And of course, even if the war stopped today, they've already been traumatized. I'm happy to report that Adrian, his crew members of the Namora Queen made it to Turkey. Adrian himself is now safely in COVID quarantine in the Philippines and he'll be seeing his family for the first time in nine months in mid-March. But by one estimate, there's, there's still at least a thousand seafarers stranded in Ukraine in the middle of this war, unable to leave because there are on harbour pilots available to guide them out amid the danger from missiles and underwater mines. So Adrian was actually quite lucky. Adrian's story, of course, is just one window on the impact of this war on people and trade. The cost of commodities is soaring. The cost of energy is going to affect everyone's business. Inflation was already bad, and this, this crisis is going to add another 3% on the global inflation rates this year. So there's a lot of metrics moving in the wrong direction, whether you're thinking about your own personal finances or you're thinking about your logistics business. Turning to the latter, I'd like to welcome Lodestar publisher Alex Lenane and news editor Nick Savides, who are going to help us explore some elements of this. Welcome both. Hi, Mike. Hi. Nick, obviously, as we heard there from Adrian, Ukraine's black seaports are under attack. And of course, we've seen in the last couple of weeks since this conflict broke out that Western corporations and companies in our industry have pulled out of Russia more or less before they even understand how sanctions might be applied. And we've had some other interesting data. I mean, Project 44 has been reporting a big drop in container shipments to him from Russia, but spot freight rates, according to Zenita from China to Europe, fell at the turn of the month. And again, in the second week of March, Nick, what's, what's going on there? So I think this, this is a complex issue, Mike. At, at, at the moment, the rates are falling because the cargo demand has fallen. But we expect that there's going to be an upturn in that because there's a, a, a hit on the capacity. And that's partly to do with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but it's also partly to do with the upcoming hit that we're going to take from the anti-end shutdown. So Nick, what's going on in Southern China at the moment? Is this the COVID outbreak? It is, yeah. We've seen that the Yantian has continued to work, but the people have been told to, to stay at home. So effectively, there's no connections to the port. So there's a very little cargo that's going to be going there. And even though the port is, is ostensibly open, there's going to be very little movement. And that's, that's going to cause, well, it's going to cause a congestion problem, which will eventually lead to higher demand for shipping services. And therefore, it will go back up. And that will presumably will feed into uh, the China-Europe trade, which we'll come back to in a moment. Now, Alex, we've had... These closures of airspace due to this invasion of Ukraine, is this going to become a long-term factor in air cargo considerations? And also, what's the impact on operations of all of this and the sanctions on Russia? Well, it's been a, it's been a complicated few weeks, frankly. Obviously, the sanctions on airlines, Russian airlines into Europe and US and European and uh, US airlines over Russia has caused quite a difficulty in the market and um, it's having a profound impact on supply chains and capacity that was already frankly pretty vulnerable to some extent it's it's sort of lucky it's happened now and not in the peak of last year demand has like in shipping demand's been quite soft but um sort of one of the key issues has been the removal of airbridge cargo's capacity um it's got a major asia U europe network and they've got about 16 wide bodies. So they're now out of the picture and looking for charter opportunities in other parts of the world. So it's, it's going to be hard to replace that capacity. In the oversized sector, it's a project and energy that's going to be severely affected with both Antonov and Volga Dnieper capacity now restricted in the, in the large commercial aircraft segment. 
Then you've got carriers like Finnair Cargo, which, you know, through no fault of its own, is struggling to put on flights to Asia. Japanese airlines have been stopping bookings to Europe. European carriers are now flying around Russia. So it's quite a bit of capacity that's been affected by all this. And this closure of the airspace, that that creates these big diversions, which presumably impacts plane payload because they're carrying more fuel. Have we got any estimates about what this is doing to total capacity on that Asia-Europe lane? Yeah, there's a few numbers out already. So lots of Airbridge Cargo and other airlines doing routes to East Asia, that's led to about a 20% drop in capacity, 22% on one lane. But as you say, it's the payloads of the European carriers having to fly around Russia have been cut as well. So the extra journey time is between one and a half and two and a half hours more than it was, which results in something like a 10% fall in capacity. Well, that's what Lufthansa has been saying. It's it's triple seven capacity to Asia has been cut by about 10% because of the fall in payload. So overall, yeah, it's, it's a chunky amount gone. Alex, looking at the TAC index, in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, on the China-Europe and the China-US lanes, rates immediately perked up. Now, in the week to the 14th of March, they perked up a lot more severely. On China-Europe, they were up 17.3% in that week. Hong Kong to Europe was up 4.9%. And China to the US jumped 15.4%. How do you expect this to play out in the months ahead? What are people you're talking to saying about where rates might be going? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the TAC index has, has gone, up a, gone up a bit. From forwarders in the market, we're hearing rate hikes of up to sort of 40%. It depends on the trade lane and how long it, it goes on for really depends on demands, how this ultimately turns out. And then, of course, you're sort of heavily affected by, by COVID, you know, we're just talking about the anti-port, but China is now restricting flights into Shanghai Pudong, which again is going to add more pressure onto rates. And then Hong Kong has been restricted. There's just restrictions in so many places. It's almost impossible to, to tell how long it will last for and where it's going to be hit next, really. Just looking at that redrawing of the air freight map or the airline map, I guess, in all of this, obviously these diversions, they affect the efficiency of the business, but there'll also be some winners, won't there? How about those super connectors in the Middle East? And I guess you mentioned Chinese carriers earlier. Are, they, are these guys going to benefit over the long run, do you think? Well, the Chinese carriers were doing sort of quite well with the start of the Ukraine invasion in the sense that you could still book with them. But now, of course, with COVID, that's being cut dramatically. The Middle Eastern carriers are in a great position geographically and in COVID terms, I think they're the ones who are going to uh, sort of quite enjoy the next few months. I mean, Lufthansa said uh, last week that although they, that they knew they were doing the right thing by banning Russian airlines and the consequent ban on them, they did appreciate that the Middle Eastern carriers currently have a strong competitive advantage. Nick, if I could just bring you back in again there. We're, we're going to hear from Michael every later on about what this war means for China's Belt and Road strategy uh, and the future of globalization as, as we know it, but more practically that rail link from Asia to Europe or from China to Europe, a big chunk of which went through Russia. So presumably most of this cargo switches back to shipping. And in fact, HSB estimate that a 50% diversion of rail cargoes equates to 3.2% of the weekly nominal ocean capacity on the Asia Europe trade route. So presumably. If we've got continued tightness in that supply-demand balance by sea, this potentially puts up with pressure on spot freight rates, not just on Asia-Europe, but globally. Yeah, it will. I mean, if that cargo moves to sea, it will definitely put pressure on the spot freight rates. It will mean that there's uh, less capacity available for cargo, obviously. But I am hearing uh, reports that some of, some of that rail cargo may go by a, a different route. I'm not certain where that, that will be at the moment. Yeah, sure. More cargo means more space taken up. So the spot rates will be affected. Thanks for that, Nick. Let me now bring in Amy Daniel, who's the CEO of predictive maritime intelligence company Windward, which has been putting out daily reports on the situation in Ukraine, more or less since the crisis began. Hello, Amy. 
Hi, Mike. It's uh, great to be here with you. So we've seen a slew of sanctions on Russia announced by government. How has that, according to your data, been affecting shipping and logistics activity to and from Russia or interaction with Russian interests such as vessel and ports? Oh, wow. That's a big question. So first of all, uh, I'd like to take a step back and say that this is a tragic humanitarian situation. And beyond all trading and shipping and business elements, I'd like to just mention the people themselves. We have a team in Ukraine. Half of them we managed to get out. Half of them is still in Ukraine. Not everybody wants out. Uh, we paid them up front a couple of salaries to support them as much as we can. But there's a limit to what we can do from obviously outside of Ukraine. So to your question, I think it's important to understand that this is a rolling, daily changing situation of sanctions, which I don't think anybody has ever seen before. To put things in context, and I'll get to the data in a second, but I just want to frame it properly. The Western powers created a new program, almost new regime of sanctions in Russia in the last 10 days. So they didn't, they did not update the, the Crimean one. They created one from scratch. And therefore there's a lot of uncertainty on whether this means it. actually the biggest fear, I think is secondary sanctions, uh, in regards to payments and so forth. Very practically speaking, I think we have moved on from a legal world of sanctions, which existed by the way, until two, two weeks ago, where some of our clients and other clients wanted to do, I'm sorry for lack of a better term, the bare, the bare minimum, which means, you know, traders want to trade. So I think people were asking, what is the minimal compliance I can have and, or it can do to a total situation with Russia that is part of the ESG policy and element. So obviously ESG is environmental, social and governance. So I think that leads to maximum, not minimum, maximum sanctions on Russia from a moral perspective, from a reputational and a social perspective. So it's the primary and the secondary sanctions, as you say, just to explain that to our listeners in a different way, perhaps, maybe you don't understand that your counterparty right now is falling foul of sanctions based on the rules that we have available to us, which are very difficult to decipher. But maybe that person, that counterparty will fall foul of those sanctions tomorrow, next week, in a month. But it's not only just about the sanctions why these companies have been pulling out of, out of Russia, it's reputational risk as well. There's also a security risk. I mean, we've heard just in the last few days that a threat to a R Russian government might seize R uh, Western businesses within Russia. Does that include ships at its ports? There's another element there as well. So I mean, have you got any thoughts on that, Ami? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, I think that the main reasons people are pulling out of Russia is reputational and social. And I think it's really interesting to see Rio Tinto specifically pull out of Russia because Rio Tinto is from Australia. So it's not Europe. That's interesting. Second of all, it's in the uh, iron ore segment. So they're exporting iron ore into Russia, which I don't think it's credible to claim that if you export iron ore into Russia, you support war, right? Yes, it can become steel, but steel can also become building. So it's very, by no stretch of the imagination, somebody would say it's under export compliance iron ore, I think. And I think that really paves the way to and joins Apple and McDonald's and Nike and so forth. So I think after we understood that, we can look at the data and the data shows a dramatic drop. If you look at the container lines perspective, then you had MSC, CMA, Maersk, Capit, Lloyd, and one, and just the first three account for almost 30% of the liner capacity out of Russia. I assume it's right now about 45 to 50% of the liner capacity has been cut out completely out of Russia. And from my conversations with some of them, they are completely discounting Russia as a business venue. And that doesn't mean just taking boxes. It also means taking fuel. And I think we should just mull on that for a second because the shipping is global. And let's say a ship has 3000 tons of fuel, 5,000 tons of fuel, it doesn't really matter. It needs to fuel every two, three, four weeks. And all the bunkering is being provided with a 30 day credit. So you get the fuel now, the fuel is worth three, four, five, six million. But at the same time, you're paying 30 days from that instance. So by definition, bunkering right now is extremely, extremely dangerous with Russia. If you look at other elements of the data, then we're seeing a decrease of about 65% in 
in bunkering or fueling of Russian vessels by non-Russian entities, which means if you're Russian, you probably, it's a bit hard to, you know, get fuel right now, not from Russian vessels. And I think the trend is we're seeing a lot of the Russian vessels and Russian owned vessels go back to the homeland. So I think many of these fleets would either find refuge in places like the Bahamas or will come back to Russia. I mean, are you seeing in your data, are you seeing anything really clear about what's happening in the Baltic uh, versus perhaps or what's happening in the Black Sea where, you know, we've got seafarers under attack and vessels have been sunk and people killed and those ports are, are either cut off or, or themselves under attack. What, what's going on? The Black Sea is not just Ukraine, Russia. It's pre actually pretty big. It's, uh, it's to the west from Ukraine. There's also, you know, Romania and Bulgaria and Georgia and Turkey on the south. So these places are still trading. I think they're trading much more carefully, but a lot of the traffic in the first days has actually been diverted to Romania and Bulgaria, obviously because it's close, right? That makes sense as a, as a first instance. So these places are still being traded in. Ukraine uh, and everywhere that's defined as a war zone according to the Joint, Joint Work Committee, it's part of the Voice of London. It's really hard to get in there right now. You can get in there. You can also make $200,000 a day. But it's super dangerous. So I didn't think you'll see anybody credible actually doing that. So effectively, all of Ukraine is under blockade. You have 200 stranded vessels. That means about 3,500 to 4,000 seafarers. Nobody really knows the accurate number. A lot of the ports in Ukraine have been mined, which means you can't get out of them because it's full of mines and you'll explode. One vessel actually sank. So I think Ukraine is completely stopped in terms of, of traffic. The Baltic is still going. Having said that, off Denmark, I believe, there's a big laddering area, ship-to-ship -ship transfer area. It used to be used to take Russian oil and export it to the U.S. and Europe. I suspect that is not happening as much right now. We're seeing a downward trend there. Mike, another um, point is, what's Russian? Because when people say Russian, it's easy to say the Russian flag, and indeed the maritime register of Russia has been under sanction as of two days ago. But the UK government is defining Russia extremely broadly. Mike basically are saying, if you are connected to Russia, affiliated with Russia, owned or operated by Russians, it's very up in the air. And I think this brings uncertainty to segments like terminal operators. So we're working with terminal operators and candidly, I've never seen them worry about due diligence. They were always like, it's not our business. You have the liners, they're dealing with the containers. Right now, terminal operators are starting to worry about due diligence. You see uh, port workers refusing to unload cargoes from Russia. And I think it happened in the UK already once or twice. You see Canada blocking any Russian affiliated vessels to come in. So I think this is evolving really, really quickly. And the definition of who's Russian is going to be very fluid. And I think we should be talking more about that. This fluid definition that we, no one really can put their hands on it, exactly what it means and for whom. This could also apply to the cargo. It's not just the vessels. You know, I spoke to a ship owner, a customer yesterday. It was also a friend. And he, he shared with me some of the conversations he's been having. So he had his charters who told him that they want to break contract with him if he has a Russian master on the vessel. Not a Russian flag. Like, so, you know, the guy has a team, right? He employs like a thousand people and coincidentally, 50 of them are Russian. He didn't employ them last week. He employed them like whatever, last 10 years, right? And literally one of the majors told him they'd like to break contract because the vessel he provided them has a Russian master. So I think, first of all, I'd like to make sure the audience here understands we're in a, in a completely different state of flux the world has ever seen. Because if you look at the rod in Venezuela, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, yes, you can talk about deceptive shipping practices and yada, yada, but basically you can't export oil out of Iran. You could export a certain dry bulb, I think concrete, for instance, out of Iran. I think it's actually legal. So you can say, I don't want to do it, but it's legal. In this case, nobody's saying that a Russian master, having Russian batteries is illegal or a Russian LCL. And my question to the, to the audience is, Julio, where does it end? For instance, tell me, if, you have a, if, if you're shipping an LCL, 
And the, the, the other part of the LCL is Russian cheers. Are you going to get bogged down with that? Because you, you booked an LCL, but the other half is uh, a Russian cheers. Or if it passed through uh, a Russian port, or if it's just under a few containers from Russia, I think this is a completely different state of flux that we've ever seen before. So I told my team two weeks ago, this is not business as usual anymore. And I think every, every one of the um, listeners here and the people who run businesses and logistics professionals need to think, to think the same. So presumably, Ami, that means that you, the, the requirement for people to do vetting on, on their counterparties and due diligence tests is hugely spiking right now. I think one of the things we were seeing is that people who have never done any sort of due diligence right now, and I think you're talking about thousands of organizations, not one, right now are being thrown into the ring really, really fast. They're expected to do something because sanctions and export control is a pretty new thing for shipping. You have thousands of organizations right now from all sorts who are scratching their head to say, what should I do? I think right now, I think, you know, the bets are off of what's going to happen because you don't need the U.S. government to go after you. You just need somebody in the media to hear that you've done business with Russian or you're outed. And at the same day, you know, when you consider a public reaction to Shell wine crude, and I'm not judging, I'm just commenting about the public reaction. I've heard the public reaction where people on social media saying, I'm not going to buy Shell products or Shell lubricants or whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with you exactly. We are in this a new world of risk and we're going to uh, explore that a little bit more in the second part of this podcast when we look at, is this a new cold war? Is, is this the end of globalization and free trade as we know it? I will look at it a bit more on that macro level. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast, but more, more importantly, please pass on our best regards and thoughts to your staff in Ukraine. Alex, turning to the uh, humanitarian effort, we now have the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. Logistics plays a big part in meeting the needs of that humanitarian effort. So as, uh, presumably the Lodestar has been inundated with notices about companies starting new initiatives to help refugees. That's right, yeah. And to be honest, it's very heartening to see so many companies put their money into this and, and, and support. A lot of them have made a lot of money over the last couple of years. So. They do have some to spare. I don't know where to start with. I don't want to list them all, but Metro in the UK is quadrupling donations for its Just Giving page. Flexbot.org is asking for support. Cargolux has, has been in the headlines recently for being the only carrier to implement a war risk surcharge. But it has also offered three and a half million euros to help refugees. So I think they can probably get away with the war risk surcharge. On a practical level, you've got DB Schenker and Deutsche Bahn. They've opened a rail bridge to Ukraine. You can drop goods off in Cologne and they'll provide onwards transport. There's a multitude of things that people can do. But I'd also just like to mention companies have been directly affected. I've been talking to companies in the Baltics and Ukraine and Moscow, and they've done some amazing work in trying to protect their staff, get them out of risky places. And I think we should also note how difficult it's been for some companies managing to keep their staff safe. Yeah, I, I would echo those those thoughts, Alex. And that is a very good time to bring in Chris Weeks, who's currently in Katowice Airport in Poland, where he's providing technical assistance for the airport that's handling uh, incoming aid along with his DHL team. Now, Chris's official title is VP Humanitarian Affairs at Deutsche Post DHL, but he's a bit of a legend in the world of humanitarian logistics, having helped at pretty much Every catastrophe, certainly in my recent memory, one way or another, I, I know from watching him in action that he's not shy about getting his hands dirty. Uh, welcome, Chris. And what's the situation in Poland at the moment? Oh, thanks, Mike. Um, thanks for that lovely introduction. The situation here is very different from a natural disaster. It's a slow build-up, actually, from a freight point of view. And we're here at uh, Kat Katowice Airport to provide some technical assistance to the management and the ground handlers here so that we can bring them some of the expertise we picked up in uh, other disasters, notably the ones you remember in, uh, in Nepal and more recently in, in Mozambique, to just name a couple. What we're planning on doing here is 
to have a couple of flights in over the weekend and use those to show the ground handlers particularly, but also the security people, customs, all the things that are possible bottlenecks for a major surge in air freight. Usually what happens to after a natural disaster is you get a very quiet period after the, the disaster and then freight starts to appear after like two to three days. This one, we've been going like 15 days. It's a slow buildup. First flight that uh, is coming in here is, is scheduled for Saturday, but I expect next week we're going to have two, three or more flights a day. And when I say flights, I mean full cargo charters, uh, 747s, Antonov. The first one that's coming in is an A340C, which is uh, actually a, a, a passenger plane. So you've got no cargo door on the main deck. So that's going to have challenges on its own for, for ground handling. So these are all the things that are sort of starting to be thrown at the airport here who are not used to handling a lot of freight. They handle the courier companies, ourselves included, FedEx and uh, UPS. There's an Amazon flight that comes in here as well. So they're used to that kind of containerized traffic, but not so used to any loose load that comes in. And also the, the other problem here is that there are no warehouses on the airport. So everything's going to have to be staged and then loaded up into trucks. So there's a coordination role here in terms of getting the trucks airside and, and loaded without causing a, a backlog of freight on the ground. Customs is going to be interesting as well, because from where we're positioned here in, in Katowice, most of the freight that's going to Ukraine or to the border area from European origins uh, will be coming on truck. So that leaves the, the freight component that I'm talking about here as the intercontinental freight. So from the US, from the Middle East, from Asia, it'll all be coming in here. But of course, here's a Poland is uh, EU. So consignors have to, to ship it on a T1 document to, if it's going into Ukraine, which means it has to go loaded up and sealed and uh, and shipped off um, immediately. So there's going to be some customs problems. I'm sure of it. Um, there's lack of warehousing is going to be a bit a struggle for them and lack of cold chain facilities. So if anyone is thinking of starting to, to, to get a charter to move in here, anyone from the humanitarian world, my recommendation first off is to, uh, is to get some help, find a freight forwarder here who can help you with the transports, warehousing and customs. Chris, where I am in London, there's, there's so many collections by people trying to do their best to help Ukraine. In fact, the local supermarkets here, they're out of nappies, they're out of baby milk. What's your advice to people in our industry, whether that's their company or just as an individual, as to how best they can provide aid right now as we enter this week three of this terrible war? I've seen a lot of these reports, Mike, and frankly, it, it concerns me a little bit that efforts are being misguided in this way. I would not recommend buying anything from really from the supermarkets to ship towards Poland or Ukraine. What they really need is hospital supplies and trauma kits, things like that, that they're desperately short of. Food is not such an issue. That can come from Poland here. And although it's a problem, it's not a major issue. It's the hospital supplies that are. So I would encourage anyone in the UK to put their efforts into supporting a qualified NGO that does this professionally, that can provide a medical support to, particularly to the to hospitals in Ukraine. MSF have been training doctors in trauma care and it's that kind of work that's going to be absolutely critical in the weeks and months ahead. So that's the message really. Support the NGOs doing hospital supplies rather than the supermarkets doing uh, food and nappies. And the same would apply if you're bringing stuff in from the US, get in touch with someone like Medicine Sans Frontier or someone similar, find out what they need 
it's better to wait and get a proper request than to assume anything and start pushing supplies in that possibly are going to be duplicated or not necessarily needed. So yeah, it could be hospital kits, trauma kits now, but in two weeks time, the situation could be very different. They might have that. It might be a different requirement. Exactly. Well, I hope that helps everybody out there. And Chris, uh, thanks for coming on and explaining your efforts and a fair wind in Poland. All the best. Thank you, Mike. In the next part of this podcast, we hear from Michael Every about what the future trading political world looks like and how this might affect you all. In the meantime, Alex, Nick, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Already in this podcast, we've discussed the practicalities of what war in Ukraine means for those moving cargo or chartering ships and planes or moving cargo by rail from Asia to Europe. We've looked also at what this invasion is doing to shipping logistics strategies and freight rates and how logistics companies and all of us can help the humanitarian effort. But let's now take a wider view. What does this conflict mean for the future of the rules-based order on which global trade and globalization itself is built. Indeed, what does the West's use of the tools of economic war against Russia mean for other countries' faith in that order? If Russia's banking services, credit cards and software can be turned off, what lesson is China, for example, learning from all this? Are we hurtling towards a more fragmented, deglobalized economy? a battle for resources and supremacy between rival powers, a new mercantilism or even a new imperialism where might trumps right. Essentially, if you're listening and you're in the logistics business, what does this invasion mean for the landscape on which you compete? Who better to ask than my next guest? He is considered one of the world's top thought leaders on geopolitics, economics and markets. Mike Levery, global strategist at Rabobank, Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Mike, obviously on the Lodestar, we're looking at Russia's invasion of Ukraine in terms of how it impacts global trade. But let's just turn to geopolitics first and get your view on uh, what these new trade rules might look like later. When I've interviewed you in the past about the US-China trade war, you argued that in some ways this was the start of a new Cold War, which is a phrase we've heard bandied around a lot since the invasion of Ukraine. And rather accurately, you also predicted in the past that the world was headed into a period of great change and disruption, which could restructure that post-World War II order. And I'm I'm not sure you had a global pandemic and a new war in Europe in mind at that point, but nevertheless, does this conflict speed or confirm what you've been saying? Is this going to accelerate a shift to a new political and trading reality? And if so, what does this look like? Yes in a short way, or the shortest possible way to answer that question, this is now history happening at maximum fast forward. So everything we'd expected to see happen over the next, let's say eight years could be happening over the next eight months. It's an extremely severe crisis. It can certainly escalate from here and blow in all manner of different directions, both military, political, economic, and financial. In fact, we expect it to on several of those fronts. And yeah, we already see in terms of the quite remarkable response from Europe compared to the US, that it's reshaping the architecture, the markets operate within, in front of our eyes. And there's a lot, lot more to go. One of those European responses, of course, was the sanctions regime on Russia. And I'm interested to explore what that means in a wider sense. This weaponization of Western institutions and markets I think, firstly, what does it mean for Russia? But maybe more importantly, as I mentioned earlier, what does this mean for other actors such as China that have done so well out of global markets but don't necessarily see capitalism in the same way as Western democracies do? Or or maybe don't want to put too much faith in that US-led system indefinitely? Will they be accelerating efforts to create alternatives to reliance on the dollar, Western finance and corporations? Well, let's start with Russia, obviously. Their economy is being enormously impacted by what we see. Uh, It's being effectively cut out of the global economy, apart from the flow of some commodities, which are also being disrupted to all Western markets on a self-sanctioning basis, if not a fully official sanctioned basis. 
So the disruption is roughly equivalent to what they saw at the end of the collapse of communism, when the entire system just fell apart and supply chains broke entirely. Similar to the early days in COVID here, where suddenly, you know, everyone was running around trying to buy toilet paper. Imagine that every day for the future, knowing it only gets worse. That's pretty much where they are at the moment. So obviously a catastrophe for them that involves a, a top to bottom reworking of everything, if they can. Now for China, they look at that and goodness me, they're seeing Russia learn a very painful lesson and thinking, aren't we glad we weren't the ones who tried to misbehave geopolitically to rebuild the global order and that we weren't the ones in the firing line. But then it comes down to a very, very clear binary. Do they look at that and think, therefore, we will stay underneath this US umbrella forever from now on, despite the fact that we have repeatedly said we don't intend to, and that we don't find it politically acceptable to know that if we do anything that the US doesn't like, they will just switch off our $3 trillion in FX reserves and sanction us to the hilt. Do they accept that or do they try and accelerate one way or another? I think they will probably try and accelerate, but the question is how? And then that becomes an interesting dilemma. Do we allow them to be a middleman buying Russian commodities at low prices and selling them to everybody else? Well, if so, they profit from this scenario. Why should they be allowed to profit from it when actually they stood, you know, cheek to cheek with Russia before it began? That seems to be an untenable position for the West to allow. So then if they do do that, do we sanction them too? At which point then we have a complete global split and neutral economies, for example, in the Middle East and North Africa will starve. And I mean, literally starve if they can't get hold of some of those commodities. So we'll feel good. We'll split the world and we could risk the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It's an enormous dilemma. China is not very happy with it and doesn't know quite what to do. We're unhappy with it. We don't know quite what to do. Russia's terribly unhappy with it and doesn't know quite what to do. But do you see any sign of Russia backing off? Not really. Do you see any really concrete sign of China backing off? Not really. What it does underline is just how powerful Western hegemony still is at the end of the day. We don't use it very often. We've become uh, lily-livered and weak-kneed and self-critical to the point that we aren't prepared to use the tools that we have to maintain the global order that we built post-World War II and post-1991. Perhaps now we're showing signs of starting to understand the levers that we control and to use them again. But I don't think it resolves the longer run dilemma that large economies with a lot of commodities and a lot of manufacturing supply chains in China clearly do not want to keep earning dollars and euros and be subject to the kind of whims that the White House has just imposed on, on Moscow. So I only see tensions building, even if that is medium or longer term, not short term. And there's no guarantee of that being the case. You've mentioned in the past the idea of a new mercantilism, uh, particularly around the US-China trade war. Is this, again, the weaponization of, of resources? Is this going to eventually lead to uh, more protectionism and politicians maybe believing that trade should be regulated based on their national interest or the security interests of a state uh, rather than what's cheaper or most efficient? I, I think my, my question really is, this, uh, is trade now becoming a zero-sum game or has the move towards that been accelerated? Trade was always a zero-sum game. <laughs> to answer the question directly, yes, it will generate the political response that you're referring to. And yes, it should do, because on an underlying basis, trade is always zero sum. If you look at a timeline of human history, the period in which we have embraced free trade in the way that we've understood it until recently is a minuscule non-event. For all the rest of human history, trade has been politicized and zero sum and resources have been used as a weapon of power against other people. It was always a delusion that we felt that that history had passed us by and we would never return to it. And it was predicated on two things, US military supremacy globally, along with financial supremacy, and the belief that every other economy that the US brought into the global economy and under its protective umbrella one way or another was a good actor who would not try and destabilize it in order to build a bigger position for themselves in their own space under their own umbrella, if you will. Well, Russia won't stand for it. China repeatedly says it won't stand for it, even though it's much more embedded than Russia was. And there are many other players, Iran being another, that frankly don't want to play within that particular arena. So it was always going to break. And the idiocy of Wall Street and uh, global businesses thinking it wouldn't because they can't be bothered to pick up a history book has just brought us to this crisis faster than maybe would have been the case. It, it looked like it was going to be China that triggered it. Many people expected that, I think. Well, I probably did too, to be honest, but 
Russia has got us to the same place faster, maybe than many thought. I was thinking of Francis Fukuyama as you, as you were speaking then, talking about the end of history. It sounds like what you're saying is this is the end of recent history. For our listeners, most of them are uh, 3PLs, logistics, shipping companies, uh, shippers. What does this mean for that world of, that they've grown up in, this globalized trading world? We're, we're talking more trade barriers, um, but this is the end of free trade, which, as you mentioned, is only a relatively new historical phenomena. Is this the start of a systemic breakdown of, which could threaten capitalism itself, which I think is something you said in the past? I don't think capitalism itself is under threat, but it will adapt and evolve, or you could say devolve, because capitalism didn't always used to be, you know, raw and, and, and bloody and tooth and claw. It used to be much more carefully regulated from 1945 to 1991, you know, b- before the Cold War ended. It was much more regulated. Prior to the 1980s, it was even more regulated than that. Who you could trade with, how you could trade, where you could move money. Speaking to the audience you're referring to specifically, I did a lot of presentations about this last year. The title of the presentation was In Deep Ship, which is where we really are. And almost everything I put forward as a thesis in that particular or hypothesis in that presentation has come to pass. What I actually said was, look, the COVID crisis followed by the supply chain crisis had woken politicians up to the fact that supply chains and logistics that you're referring to are absolutely political and geopolitical. Who has the power to say you can and can't get things? Who controls a physical infrastructure determining where goods do and don't flow and at what price is absolutely political, top and bottom, just as much as uh, what tax rate you pay or what regulations you have within your economy. And to think that we would ever allow that to be outsourced purely to private sector oligopolies over the long run was again another historical delusion. You've seen the White House come out very aggressively, so has Australia, so have many other countries, and basically say, we want to take greater control of supply chains again. And on one level, that means manufacturing. And on the other hand, it actually means ocean carriers, ports, infrastructure, logistics. There are lots of different issues and lots of things we could talk about, about how they'll go about that. But when you have major logistics companies run by China, for example, which is a state actor, obviously thinking of China Inc. rather than the bottom line, how can you possibly, possibly run free market capitalism against it and think that's a sensible strategy during a Cold War? It, it makes no sense. And I predicted last year that it would change. The industry would become much more important, which is good, but much more politicized, which is not so good because it means the profits are not going to be as important as the service that you deliver to your national economy, Inc, be it China, Inc, America, Inc, France, Inc, Europe, Inc, whatever. So expect a lot more restructuring along those, along those lines and faster than people think. When you mention the manufacturing supply chain there, Michael, do you mean if you're going to take hold of that supply chain, essentially what you're talking about is maybe sourcing elsewhere, nearshoring, reshoring people have been throwing these around for years without much happening, even with the US, China trade war, we did see some movement of, of manufacturing, but mostly it was quite minimal and it was into some neighboring countries. It wasn't, it wasn't an entire restructuring based on the view that things are, are, are becoming zero sum or are already. Is that what you expect? We see a change in the sourcing as a means of taking hold of that supply chain. And secondary to that, just that China New Silk Road, which is this sort of economic military tentacle spreading across the globe by maritime and, and by land. Well, one part of that is that land bridge through Russia into Europe, which is now closed. The, those rail services, I think, are at the, the beck and call of the military at the moment. No one's shipping on that route. Is that what you mean? We're just these trade, when you say taking hold of supply chains, we're talking about resourcing in different ways. Well, okay, let's do Belt and Road first of all, shall we? Actually, China has been scaling back on that for years because it realized that what was always a geopolitical slash military project rather than a purely economic balance sheet based one in that it never made any money for them and it never will, was not a good idea. They didn't have the trillions of dollars to keep throwing at it. And they had really, really not gone into full reverse, but the scale at which they were adding to it was vastly, vastly reduced. And you see why. There you go. All the money they put into building that railway track through Russia to Europe has now been blown up, literally at the Ukrainian border. So what good has it done them? It looked clever if they could have roped Europe in. They didn't, you know, factor in the fact that Russia might act the way that it did, or they did and didn't think Europe would act the way that it has. So that project in itself isn't as clever as it looks. In terms of the manufacturing supply chains, yes, 
during the trade war, the US-China trade war, we did see marginal moves, more than maybe some people realize in terms of new capacity going to India or Southeast Asia or Mexico, et cetera. It was relatively limited, and I'll tell you why. First of all, because people thought Trump would be a one-term wonder and then disappear, which proved to be the case. And they thought Biden would be a complete reversal and a return to business as normal. And they were completely wrong. Biden hasn't done very much. What he has done is a continuation of what Trump was doing. And if Trump wins again in 2024 or someone with his policies, we will have what he was doing before on steroids. When that happens, you will see that every executive who is paid very well not to do anything and is paid very well to keep saying, I'm not going to move my supply chains because if I move first, my products are more expensive than everybody else's. I'm punished in the market rather than rewarded by the government or patriotic consumers. Uh, and I'm out of a job. All of them will leave the same way that they're leaving Russia now. Who would have thought it would have made sense to leave the money you could make in Russia just because they evade their neighbors? There's no business case for that, but you can see that companies are choosing to self-sanction and just say, we don't want anything to do with it. And in fact, that comes back to a point that you alluded to a moment ago. I've been saying to clients now for a few years, the fundamental choice is going to come down to this, whether you like it or not, it will come down to this. Is trade about prices or is trade about values? Not value, values. And we see right now with Russia, all of a sudden it's about values again. Of course, prices are important, but some things are more important than how much things cost. Uh, and I expect to see that political momentum to continue to snowball going forward. Now, I may be wrong. It may not apply to China for a while, but eventually I think it will too. So I guess just finally, Michael, if you're in the, the business of logistics, uh, shipping, air freight, you should be looking for a takeaway from this conversation. You're, you're looking at a new geopolitical world. We're looking at a lot of turbulence ahead and maybe you expect even more disruption than we've seen over the last two years. Absolutely. I mean, with maybe at the peak short-term disruption in terms of the airspace being closed, et cetera, et cetera. But the disruption we have seen in the past two weeks is indicative of what is going to become increasingly normal. Don't expect it to be unwound back to a nice open skies, open world environment again. And while there are risks to that, because if you're locked into the old way of doing things, you will be suffering. If you can be proactive and look forward and see where new supply chains can be built, newer trading relationships on geopolitical lines can spring up and opportunities to make sure that you are the first in the queue to be doing that, you can reap rich rewards. So in other words, you've got to look at the whole global map geopolitically rather than from just a balance sheet perspective and take a long run view. And if you do, I think actually the industry is still a great one to be in with bright prospects. You just need to be flexible and understand what's going on. Michael Avery, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Very welcome. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenita our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Haight for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.